0: Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. Uh, We've got a special guest today, Phil Kirpin, the President of American Commitment, uh, Principal at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, uh, a frequent Fox News contributor, and and also a frequent CDC critic. So we'll uh, we'll get into that. Uh, Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Hey, Ian, my pleasure. Great to be with you.
0: Yeah. Um, So I wanted to start with... of where we we've started a lot with these conversations which is you know what were your initial thoughts about covid were you immediately skeptical about i mean how severe it was any of the policies we were doing or were you concerned you know what was what was your response
1: well you know i thought the um it's interesting i thought the most striking feature of the early data out of china was the extreme uh age skew in all of the data and you know i remember telling my kids in like january and february of 2020 this really doesn't affect kids. It's nothing you have to worry about. It's not going to uh, have any effect on you. And of course, um, I was incorrect only because of the way it was mediated by bad government policies. Uh, But, you know, it became pretty clear uh, pretty early on that the policy response was going to be catastrophically off course, uh, poorly targeted, poorly designed, uh, that it was being politicized in an extremely destructive way. And so, you know, normally I work on kind of economic issues, taxes, spending, regulation, that kind of stuff. But it was kind of obvious that all the usual stuff I care about was about to become largely irrelevant because we didn't have government, you know, forcibly shutting down people's businesses and schools and kind of destroying their lives. And so I've been on kind of this two year detour trying to fight all of this stuff. And, uh, uh, unfortunately, with a lot less success than I would have liked, especially when the Trump administration was in, because I had a lot of pretty good ties there. And uh, for the most part, they they didn't listen to much of what <laughs> I had to say, unfortunately.
0: that is, It's funny you mentioned that, because that was uh, my next question for you. Um, so, you know, obviously, you have a lot of contact with politicians, and and especially in the Trump White House early on. Uh, so what do you think, what is your opinion or, or what was your sense of what was going on inside the Trump White House with regards to COVID policy? Did they kind of unquestioningly accept the the Fauci-Burks lockdowns or was there concern that these would have other impacts? Or you know, what, what did you think their sense was early on of what the policies were going to do?
1: Well, you know, I think the. Um... First of all, they had a team that was very poorly designed uh, for dealing with this virus. Uh, it, and, and this has continued to this to this very day. But I mean, they had people whose experience and expertise really was from fighting HIV and just a completely different type of virus. You know, for, for a sexually transmitted infection, you can actually do contact tracing and it has some value. Uh, even, even for that, it, it's, uh, you know, limited, but it has some value for a highly infectious respiratory virus. It's completely absurd. And yet they took kind of this whole mentality, this whole model. And I think that the Berks hire was kind of the key bad hire of the Trump administration, uh, because they took this this sort of paradigm that really didn't fit at all. And they tried to use that as the foundation of everything that came after. And I actually think that Trump had some reasonably good instincts fairly early on. You might remember when he said, you know, everything's going to open again by Easter. It's going to be the greatest Easter ever. And uh, he certainly had some people in the White House uh, for from sort of the more economic policy side that I think kind of got how incredibly destructive lockdowns were, particularly Uh, Larry Kudlow at the National Economic Council, but uh, you know the president, uh, you know President Trump was very susceptible to public opinion and expert opinion, and he had cable news on all the time. And I just think that the onslaught was enough that it kind of got to him. He said, you know, I'm going to get killed if I go out on my own and sort of uh, disregard my own so-called experts, and uh, you know, I don't. It goes against my own instincts, but I'm going to I'm going to go with them, and I think that's essentially what he did.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because, and it, it, it's related to something I wanted to ask you about as well. Uh, was there anything that they that he could have done to avoid the kind of media criticism? I, it feels like it was a no win situation for him because if it, if they just kept everything open and it, it never did lockdowns, never fought, listen to Fauci or Burks, they would have been crucified in the media. But they did lockdowns, and and obviously there was mask recommendations pretty early on, and they still got crucified by the media. So you know, was there anything they could have done that wouldn't have been criticized
1: uh no i don't think so i mean i think <laughs> that the you know the 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 tr- trump was on track to be reelected. Uh, i think when COVID came along and the you know the entire establishment to a certain extent of both parties really disliked president trump and you know i think that this was their opportunity to disrupt him to defeat him and uh you know the anything he did would have been wrong and catastrophic and he would have been attacked for it. And, and given that reality, um, no, he should have done what was actually substantively correct. <laughs> he shouldn't have been concerned about the reaction, which was going to inevitably uh, be negative. And, you know, I, the other problem is, you know, when you know, nobody kind of thought that a job like CDC director mattered. Okay. And if he had thought the job had been important, I think he would have hired someone much more competent. And you have know, so the same thing for surgeon general. So you have these jobs that are sort of, Afterthought, kind of backwater type jobs in the hundreds of appointments that a president has to make, and he probably gave it ten seconds of thought. Um, But then once you're in sort of a crisis mode, now if you fire someone, then it's a big big story that you fired them, even though maybe you hadn't even given much thought to hiring them in the first Mm -hmm. place. And so I think he was sort of a little bit uh, just uh, felt felt a little bit constrained. And the other thing is, you know, he put the vice president in charge of that task force. Uh, And, you know, I think Vice President Pence did a really bad job uh, of, you know, criticizing any of the inputs that he was being given. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. Ultimately, I think that, um, you know, look, we would have had something pretty similar. If the president had come out and said, we're we're not shutting anything down, it's not worth it, we've got to keep uh, society functioning, we've got to avoid panic, the blue states and cities still would have shut down. Yeah. States and cities for the most part would not have. And so, you you know, you would have kind of, I think you would have ended up where you were by, you know, April or May from the beginning, essentially. Uh, But I don't think it would have been that much different in terms of the way it played out.
0: Yeah. Uh, Do you think that uh, that the Trump White House that they realized pretty early on that Fauci was going to be kind of, I I don't know, the lack of a better word, an enemy in terms of of the response from them, because he was going to be kind of this he was going to become the the saint that the, for the left or for the media that to look to and become the kind of counterpoint to Trump. Do you think they realized that? Uh,
1: I think they probably understood that by, you know, mid February or something like that. Uh, but you know, they, they, I think made a calculation that if you fire him, well, you know, and then, you know, you'd rather have them on the inside of the tent, I guess, uh, peeing out or, or, you know, uh, I don't know the right metaphor, but basically look, if they fired him, then he's even more powerful, ubiquitous media figure. And uh, he's expressly against them all the time. Whereas if you keep him on, he's got to walk a little bit of a tightrope of supporting his administration and that kind of thing. And they may have been actually correct in that assessment. I'm not sure that they actually had the ability to stop him from being what he was, uh, even if they had fired him.
0: Hmm. Interesting uh, hypotheticals to think about. Uh, what do you think was behind the early flip-flop on masking from the CDC and and Fauci and others? Uh, I mean, obviously, that's it's a question we may never get a great answer to. But just from your own sense, to, if you had any conversations with people, what do you think was behind that that initial recommendation change?
1: Well, I think there were a few things going on. First of all, there was a very uh, there was a major global effort going on to upend the science up to that point based on political activism and advocacy. And you had the guy, uh, Jeremy Howard, out of Australia with his masks for all and the fake studies they were pushing. And so this wasn't a US specific phenomenon. This happened basically everywhere except the Nordic countries, which for whatever reason, don't fall prey to this kind of political influence operation. Uh, But it happened almost everywhere in the world around that time. So it's hard to say that it was something specific to what was happening in the US or in the Trump administration, because it happened kind of everywhere all at once. And I think that, you know, at at least to me, and I wasn't really against it when it was done, which is kind of my one huge regret, not that it would have necessarily mattered what I had said at that (laughs) point. But you know, I think that the logic of it uh, at least to me, and I think to a lot of others who uh, who otherwise might have fought it, but allowed it to kind of go. And, and w- I think the thinking was, we've got all these irrationally scared people who are sort of sidelined from a functioning society. And if you don't somehow get them out of their houses and back to work and, you know, back to sort of engaging in the world, then this is there's just no bottom to how catastrophic this is going to be. And so you know, if these idiots think that a piece of fabric on their face is enough to uh, swage their irrational fears, then you know we'll do that for a little bit. It'll be kind of obvious to everyone that it's not really doing anything, so it won't last that long. But it'll it'll get people away from being like holed up in their basements and afraid, and it'll kind of start returning things to normal. I think was the logic, um, at least you know, the reason that I was okay with it at that time, and of course. That was catastrophically incorrect. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't know how, how how much more wrong something could ever be. So, you know, people sometimes ask, what did you get wrong about COVID? And I said, you know, I thought the masks would help things get back to normal and they wouldn't last very long. It would be kind of obviously ridiculous. Even for schools, I was kind of like, hey, whatever, if you get the schools open, it'll be obvious to everyone they're not doing anything. Kids aren't going to wear them. It won't last long. And so I, I really got that wrong. Uh, but I think that the main motivation for the political decision makers at least i mean i guess some of the science people actually believed that you know decades of science were wrong and a mask somehow does stop uh you know respiratory virus but i think the logic for kind of the political and executive level decision makers was kind of look we got to do something to end this lockdown and this fear cycle and get people back out and about and uh it was it was a little bit misguided (laughs) but i think that was the logic
0: got it yeah in theory it makes some sense um obviously in practice it's it's one of those things where you you know you're taking it you to give an inch and they take a mile or it's it's just become an endless cycle of, of masking but um so you've you've astutely and repeatedly pointed out that cdc guidance is is often completely absurd um uh, and and just com- out of dated outdated entirely but yeah, like, the, for example, they still haven't updated their Zika virus guidance. Uh, yeah, this so- is
1: very important. And, and it- any of your listeners, this is very, very important. Any of your listeners who uh, think it's very important to uh, follow CDC guidance scrupulously should be aware that basically the entire United States uh, is in the purple zone for Zika. <laughs> and, and therefore, therefore um, among other recommendations that are very important, uh, if you and your wife uh, have sex any time during pregnancy, you need to use a condom. Very important. You see the CDC. I, I've been trying to. Um, I've been trying to ask when they might think it's safe to lift that, but I never a reply. But that is an effect.
0: It's it's mind-boggling. It's 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 incredible. It's hard to believe. So that was I wanted to ask you. You know what what's their problem? Why is there like this? Can it be fixed, or is the organization just so broken that it's impossible to repair it?
1: Well, look. I mean, I think the if the CDC is some dumb government entity that people kind of mostly ignore and they put like dumb recommendations out. um, Okay, fine, whatever. Let that exist. It's a waste of billions of dollars, but okay. If people actually take their recommendations, their guidance, and transform them into binding mandates that disrupt people's lives indefinitely, then we have a big problem. And so I I think that uh, the problem is not necessarily that guidance exists, because they've got lots of dumb guidance on lots of things, COVID being kind of the least of it. Uh, The problem is that somehow for COVID and only for COVID, we've got a lot of government entities Federal, state, and local that think if CDC recommends something, they ought to mandate that thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the big distinction that politicians are completely incapable of making. And um, and and so that is related to my next question for you, which was you know my concern is that this this guidance and this new obsession with following CDC guidance is designed to kind of continue indefinite masking. Uh, you know, you you recently just did this uh, transcription, basically, of uh, Rochelle Walensky's speech, where she's basically implied, I didn't get a cold, so masks work. And- you know, <laughs> Right,
1: right. right. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, <laughs> the head of our Augusta scientific uh, organization, the CDC, is suggesting that maybe healthcare workers should be masked literally forever because, haha ha, I haven't had a cold in two years. Which, by the way, she's mostly zooming into work. I mean, among right. other reasons, she might not have had a cold. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, you almost have to laugh to not cry. And I am really worried. Uh, I, I think we're finally ending school masking most places, although certainly not here in DC anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, but the majority of the country. Uh, but I see no short term end to the healthcare. Sector, which is a huge, huge problem, healthcare workers being subject to. And by the way, I think a lot of the reason. This is totally speculative, but I think a lot of the reason so many healthcare workers are claiming that they're so overworked and overwhelmed, uh, even though volumes are objectively lower than normal and have been throughout the pandemic, is they're wearing masks all day, and they don't want to admit mm-hmm. that that's a problem. But I think that is a problem for them. I think it's part of why they've been so grumpy and angry all the time about everything. Um, so I'm worried about the healthcare. I'm worried about the healthcare workers that it becomes normalized and institutionalized and permanent, essentially. Uh, not least of which, because the CDC director seemed to say that last week that that's something she wants because she hasn't had a cold in two years. Uh, yeah. But you know, I also worry if we don't if we don't force the maskers to admit they were wrong then this is going to become an annual ritual in blue areas. Uh, you know, every winter when we get into respiratory season, they're going to bring it back and say, we know it works. And that'll be the extent of their evidence presentation.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, that's I, my, my question is really, is this going to continue until there's a new president? Obviously you get theoretically a new CDC director, but at that point, does it even matter because the guidance has now been out there and it will be seen as a, a political move that a new CDC director under a new president that maybe from a different party, for example, would make a different recommendation. You know, is it is it too late now? The cat's out of the bag.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think the CDC under I think if you get a Republican president and the CDC director says, oh mess," you know, we put in Jay Bhattacharya or somebody uh, you know, smart to run the <laughs> CDC and they say it was oh, a big mistake, it never worked, the evidence never supported it. Uh I mean, I don't see D.C. or Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York caring. Do you? I mean, (laughs) they'll say they'll say, no, no, no. We believe in the real science, which is Rochelle Walensky. And I I don't you know, not that they ever really had. You know, they'll say we believe in the fake MMWRs from the old CDC. And there won't be. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll get. Maybe we'll get some, you know, I I was one of the most disappointing things to me uh, that we've seen is how corrupt a lot of the scientific researchers have been. Because if, you know, there was that big, big study uh, that was done in Bangladesh by this guy, Jason Avalok and a bunch of his collaborators. And uh, if they had just presented the data with a conventional presentation, it clearly would have been a null outcome. And instead they published with this twisted, contorted econometric model where they, they hid the ball. They didn't even say anywhere in their paper that the total difference across 300 villages between masked and unmasked was 20 cases in two months. They The number 20 doesn't appear anywhere in their paper. It had to be dug out of the data set uh, by a professor from Berkeley named Ben Recht. And they, they just, they twisted and contorted. And they got these headlines everywhere saying that it proved masking works. Uh, you know, the biggest study that's been done that clearly demonstrated that there was no impact and uh, they twisted their own results to lie about it. And, you know, if researchers are so bent on producing a certain result, regardless of what their own data shows, then it's really hard for us to ever, you know, for us to ever get any of these people to admit they were wrong. I mean, there's a woman from Brown University, a professor named Emily Oster, who started collecting data last year on school masking. And she had a very good data set. And it showed that there was no impact. In fact, there were slightly higher cases in the mass schools than the unmasked schools. And then Governor DeSantis, quoted her findings, quoted her data. And of course, the media, you know, they all start calling her up and she says, oh, no, I love masks. Everyone should mask. He shouldn't have used my study. So you had people actually running away from their own data, from their own conclusions, uh, just b- to be part of kind of th- this, this herd, this mask, uh, you know, this political masking movement, whatever you want to call it. And When people have that kind of level of commitment to something where, you know, their own data is not going to matter because the conclusion has to be what they want it to be for whatever their policy agenda, politics, ideology, whatever you want to call it, it's, you know, those people are never going to change their tune. And so you can replace them in most places with people who are not going to do something so destructive and stupid. The problem is in the bluest places (laughs) where you're just never going to replace them, there's no obvious end to any of this. And so mm-hmm. I, that, that's, that's the challenge. I think we're going to have, we're going to be in a state, we're gonna, a couple of years from now, I think all of this is going to be totally forgotten in most places, but in the most liberal places, they're going to be bringing it back every year still indefinitely, uh, just because it, they've, uh, you know, they've set themselves on a path where they can't really escape from that. Their own base wants it. And, you know, liberal cities are, are one party jurisdictions.
0: Yeah. It's, it's terrifying to think about that. I think, I, I think you're right. I hope you're not right, but I think you're right. I hope a, I'm not right too. <laughs> living in one of those areas myself, as I know you do, it is, uh, it is definitely, uh, infuriating to think about that possibility, but you brought up the Bangladesh study, which I think is a great example of, of one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which was how bad these, these studies are, the CDC studies, the, the researcher studies, um, you know, there's, there was one that just came out that I know we've been Talking about with the uh, the county level data where uh, you know they classified certain counties as not having a mandate when they did, or pairing ridiculous counties uh, all across the country. Uh, so you know why are they so bad at this? If it worked, it should be so easy to show it instead of doing these ridiculous pairings, right?
1: Well, that's the thing. Okay, so you know you if you if you just aggregate, you take the counties from that study and you you just aggregate them and you compare the masked to the unmasked. Uh, you see, there's no there's no difference at all, other than a timing effect. The ones that masked earlier peaked earlier, which just tells you that mask mandates were put in around the peak, because you know the yeah. the, uh, the other ones mostly all put in masks also around their peak, just later in the study period. And so you know if you sync these county, you know if you pair them, however your pairing method is, and you sync them so that the uh, you know the mask mandate ones are the ones that peaked earlier then you'll, you know, you'll have the decline of those paired with the, uh, you know, the rise of the other ones. You can say, ah, oh, it worked. You know, the, so it's a totally spurious result. It's, uh, the, the outcome is a residue of the design of the study. It doesn't tell you anything about what mask mandates actually did. And, uh, but somehow the, the main guy is like on Twitter acting extremely earnest while people clown him, which I find endlessly entertaining. Uh, but, you know, the, the, y- your point is exactly right if they had a substantial effect, which is what we keep being told in the media, and they say, you know, the CDC says it's one of the most effective, but you would not have to have these tortured, twisted methods to try to find some effect. If the effect size weren't tiny, it would be obvious. And, you know, a lot of people attack you for your charts and say, you're not uh, adjusting for all the various confounders and so on and so forth. But, you know, if the effect were anything other than tiny, then you wouldn't need to do that. Then it would be mm-hmm. obvious. It would be clear. You would see an inflection point when it's put in. And so, you know, we. It, it's it to, to me, it's extremely clear that the effect of masking is somewhere between zero and very, very small. And so you can have this sort of academic debate, you know, is it zero or non-zero? But if it's non-zero, it's so small as to be essentially irrelevant. It's negligible. It's overwhelmed by a million other factors, and so the effect size is so tiny that talking about whether it's statistically significant totally misses the point.
0: Yeah, that's it's a great point. It, and I, it's not. I brought that up myself many times. Where you know, the, it, there's so many demonstrable harms to this, especially with schools, that it has to be an overwhelming amount of, of difference to be worth the trade-offs. And and that's obviously we, if we, if that was possible, we would have seen it by now. Uh, and obviously we haven't
1: but, but so, not to mention, Ian almost everyone got COVID
0: yeah you're right exactly so yeah it's
1: like, you know it's pretty obvious this stuff didn't work because almost everyone got COVID and you know like so really what was it all for I mean I guess pre-vaccine you could say well yeah everyone's going to get it but we're going to slow it down they'll get it later when there's a vaccine available I, I don't know what it is now
0: yeah exactly Um uh, and obviously, so I've just mentioned school masking. It's it's been an incredibly important issue for you, as it has been for, for so many people, and rightfully so. Uh, teachers unions have just completely bought into this, and you know, we we see our good friend Randy bringing up how important the guidance important the guidance will be going forward in this, assessing masks and when they should be implemented in schools. Uh, can this be salvaged at this point? Can you can you pass legislation to ban school masking? You know, what can we do?
1: Yeah, some states are doing that. Um... Virginia uh, notably did it despite Democrats controlling the state Senate, which I thought was a big deal. Uh, of course, Florida has done it, Iowa, uh, I think Utah. Uh, so some states have done that. Uh, the, interestingly, the governor of North Carolina vetoed a bill. Uh, so we'll see if there are enough votes to, to override his veto. But I think you know your only meaningful long-term protection against them bringing the mask back is to have legislation that enshrines a parental right uh, to, you know, opt out of any mask mandate. And, you know, we've only got a handful of States that have done that so far. And I I worry a little bit that a lot of places will say, Oh, it's over. We don't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, but actually when, when there's very, very little COVID and people are sort of in retreat is the time you want to put sort of permanent protections in, uh, because it's going to be much harder to put them in. If the panic ramps back up again, at some point, you want to have those legal protections in place so that you can rely on them when you need them. Uh, know the teachers unity it's interesting i assume that most of the decision makers are smart enough to know the masks don't do anything especially you know because their teachers all saw you know people got COVID anyway i mean they saw it didn't but i i think they must perceive that there's a disciplinary or social control benefit that it makes children more docile something i don't i i would like to understand more what their true motivations are because i don't really get why they're so intent on keeping these things in as long as possible. I mean, the Seattle Teachers Union. I don't know if you saw the letter they just put out a couple of days ago. The Seattle Teachers Union is totally against removing masks before May 1st at the earliest, and uh, that's because masks are necessary for a sense of normalcy for the students, according to. <sighs> and they actually wrote this in a letter. I, 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 you know, when when people are making arguments that are so blatantly contrary to reality, you have to wonder what their motivations actually are. And I don't have a good handle on what it is, other than maybe they want to bargain it back for more money or, you know, they think that somehow it controls, I I don't know. I don't know what it's really about. I I'm sure some of them really believe it, but a lot of them have to know better by now. And there must be some other motivation, but I I have trouble figuring out what it might be.
0: Yeah. I posted just a a tweet the other day, basically saying, you know, LA County teachers Union is is fighting mass, uh, New York City still masking toddlers, et cetera. Somebody replied to me and said, "You know, LA County teachers unions when when opening schools, their demands were to something like defund the police." And yeah, yeah, right. it's just, I, it's it's hard to believe how how blatantly political these these groups have become with no apparent pushback. But that that is something I wanted to get your your sense of: is uh, will people realize now how important local governance is? Will will they get up there, speak out, uh, vote? out the bills who have kind of perpetrated these policies or will people just kind of forget the further we get away from march 2020
1: you know i think the um the local level backlashes are enormous uh and and you know, it's not in and that we have even seen in blue areas i mean they fired three school board members in san francisco of course you know the problem is the mayor gets to the replacements. I don't know how much better the replacements are going to be, uh, but you know, I think that uh, we saw a just unbelievable revolt in New Jersey. In New Jersey, my favorite one was in New Jersey, where uh, a 19-year-old kid got elected to school board on a platform of "those guys ruined my senior year," <laughs> which I which I enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, there is a there is a broad understanding among parents in particular, and with, with some exceptions in the most insane liberal areas, but there's a broad understanding among parents in particular that children were really badly harmed by the policy response for for no reason, that there was they, they, were, they had nothing to show for it, especially after this winter where so many kids got COVID anyway, and it was a minor nothing thing. And they said, well, what did we do all that for two years to prevent this thing? that was a minor nothing thing. And I think that uh, there's going to continue to be a massive backlash. I think that what we saw in the places that had school board elections last year, uh, we'll see a continuation of this year in a, in a pretty massive way. Um, and that manifests itself differently in different areas, of course, because, you know, there's some places where, um, you know, you're going to have maybe slightly less crazy people in a Democratic primary or something like that in areas that are one-party areas. But you're going to have a lot of places that don't usually elect Republicans that will. Uh, and you're going to have a lot of places that you know the incumbents always get reelected where they won't. And so I think you're going to see a lot of turnover uh, on school boards. And you know, I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, the It is going to be a bit of a challenge. we I mean, need a lot of inexperienced people in and uh, it, they're going to need help, I think, uh, to, to do a good job in those roles beyond kind of like, you know, we're not doing COVID stuff anymore. You know, I'm hoping we can get some broader improvements, uh, in educational policy and curriculum and a lot of the other things. Uh, and, and what I would really, what, what I really think has been kind of the silver lining in terms of the the COVID schools disaster is we've also seen a huge increase in school choice laws passing, uh, all over the country. And to me, this is a better solution than trying to fix the public schools is just let people take their money and go. um, Especially in more liberal areas, if you could get, you know, statewide school choice legislation in where people can take their uh, tax dollars and go somewhere that fits them better, they're going to have a much better chance of finding a place that's, you know, more ideologically consistent with what they want to see and more focused on education and less on left wing politics and so forth. And so to me, escape from the public schools is probably a better route in some of these cities uh, than trying to fix them. Uh, And so especially where you have got blue cities in red states. I think that's possible blue cities and blue states. It's not for obvious reasons. Uh, You know, that's kind of the the hardest uh, challenge to deal with. But I I do think that um, I do think there are a lot of people that never would have gone to a school board meeting in their whole life uh, that went to a whole bunch of them and yelled a whole lot and uh, are going to stay engaged now.
0: I certainly hope so. Obviously, it's it's made it clear how important these things are that uh, like oh, and said, yeah, one,
1: other, one other point on that. You know, the yeah. other thing is when we, a lot of parents kind of had no sense of how crazy the curriculum was until they started watching it on Zoom at home. And so, you know, there's a, yeah. there, are, there are concerns that go way beyond just, you know, the covid protocols per se to like, you know, why are they te- why are they telling my son he's a racist because he's white and that kind of right. stuff. And so there are all these sort of broader concerns that have been brought to the forefront now because, you know, parents were essentially in the classroom because the classroom became their house.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a good point, and it's something I I wouldn't have considered. I don't have kids, so that yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and it it brings up that that idea of what you were saying earlier about how the CDC appointments were jobs that nobody thought about for more than ten seconds. It's like a lot of these things nobody thinks about because it was not in front in their house, as you say. So yeah, if there is one one positive takeaway, I hope. That is something that we can change going forward. But uh, looking forward to the rest of this year, we have obviously with the midterms coming up, uh, there's a lot of expectation that's going to change Congress, the, the composition of Congress. Uh, do you think that that would have a significant impact on policies going forward? Or is it just not going to matter because he, you know, Biden could veto new legislation or things like that?
1: Well, you know, my... Uh... I always prefer divided government in Washington uh, because the vast majority of things, the vast majority of laws that are passed do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. And I think most Americans agree with that, which is why when we do give one party unified government, we usually have a corrective in the next election (laughs) and we divide it again. Uh, And so I think it's going to be a good thing. I mean, look, I mean, I think the uh, the the just the catastrophic amount of spending just been shoveled out the door. Uh, has really fueled inflation even before the energy problems and everything else that was going on and just the trillions and trillions of dollars. I saw one report the other day uh, that $400 billion of COVID checks was just lost to straight up fraud. Uh, And then maybe half of that went to China, which is like funds their entire defense budget for a year. And we were just like anyone who said, Oh, I can't work COVID. We were just sending them 600 bucks a week, like indefinitely. I mean, it was just the insane amount of money that was wasted. Uh, And You know, I think the the nice thing about Republican Congress with a Democratic president is they're not going to pass more massive spending bills and, you know, more kind of giant, you know, do something government bills that are going to mostly be wasteful and harmful. Uh, You know, that said, are they going to be able to reverse things? Are they going to be able to improve things sort of in a positive direction? That's much more difficult. And I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. I think it'll depend on the extent to which Biden feels a need to tack to the center. Of course, you know, the, um, under both Obama and Clinton, when we had the big backlash in the first midterm election, we then had a substantial moderation for the next two years. And we were actually able to do some things. Uh, We were able to do the budget control act under Obama. We were able to extend all the Bush tax cuts under Clinton. We were able to do welfare reform. And so, you know, if Biden follows that pattern, and kind of moves to the center then you know i think we will be able to do some things uh to kind of restore some some sanity and you know i hope you know kind of pare back some emergency power some of some of this stuff doesn't recur and that kind of thing um if he decides he's going to disregard congress and not worry so much about his reelection but just go all out with abusing regulatory power and continue to push things then you know may, maybe we don't i mean it's hard it's hard to say um uh, because you know, normally in a first term presidency, you get that moderation because they want to be reelected. But given how old Biden is, and that he may not be the preferred candidate of his party anyway, this may be more like a second term uh, where that doesn't happen. So it's a big open question. I don't know. But it's worth it, I think, to have a big sort of Republican takeover landslide year, I think is highly beneficial, if only because it restores gridlock, which is generally uh, a good thing in Washington.
0: Hmm. It, so it, it's obviously very early and as you just mentioned it, it, this could be kind of an irrelevant concept going forward because we don't know what the situation is going to be like with biden um you know obviously it's uh, he was just mentioning the how important the iranian resistance to vladimir putin is and uh then he, he mentioned how vladimir putin was going to invade russia so you know we're, we don't know how he's going to make it into 20 if he's going to make it to 2024 but it it What's your sense of the political field that would oppose him, and, and do you have an ideal ticket to kind of go up against a potential Biden reelection?
1: Well, you know, I think that um, if President Trump runs, he he can't be beaten in a Republican primary, uh, and he would not be my preferred candidate for a number of reasons. But you know, I just think the uh, the the number of committed supporters he has is too large uh, to be defeated in a primary, and he couldn't be defeated last time with a lot of, you know, with basically the whole field against them. And so, I think if Trump wins, he'll be the nominee, and we'll have, you know, either a rematch against Biden or maybe against Hillary, which some people are floating, or you know, but but very likely, two very very old guys who had bad COVID records essentially uh, is what that uh, rematch would be. Uh, I'm hoping that he doesn't run. I'm hoping that this is that he's floating it to stay relevant and important and influential. But he he won't actually think it's worth the uh, you know the headaches and everything that goes with that very difficult job. And you know if he doesn't run, uh, then the field opens pretty wide, and there're probably ten people who want to run. And you know I think that the clear front runner, assuming he gets reelected this year as governor, would be uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, who has uh, I think. The best record on COVID of any big state governor, and you, you could argue maybe of any governor, but there there's some small state ones that never lock down and stuff like that that you might you might quibble, but uh, I think he's so knowledgeable and articulate on all of the issues, but especially on everything that went wrong with COVID that I think that that would be ideal for us to have kind of to force the national conversation and reckoning that we want to have, because if he could make the campaign largely about that and be reelected, then I think it would sort of resolve the don't do it again don't repeat it every year thing you know assuming that we're still in that cycle at that point and so i you know, i think you know he would he would be my preferred candidate uh because of of you know the issues he'd bring to bear and what it would represent uh, but you know i think there are a lot of other good potential candidates uh, i thought you know i thought kim reynolds did a very good job in her state of the union response for instance uh you know i think that um you know, a lot of people talk about Pompeo because of his foreign policy experience. And he actually was a pretty, pretty solid member of Congress as well. So there's a pretty long list, you know, as long as it's not one of the blue state Republican lockdown artists like uh, Charlie Baker, or, um, or uh, you know, Larry Hogan, or someone like that, who wouldn't have much of a chance with the Republican primary electorate anyway, I think we, we should have a pretty, pretty good candidate, uh, you know, to kind of uh, carry, you know, some of the points that we want to make.
0: Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, I just had a couple more questions for you, and, and one just kind of a broad, broader societal question, which was just, have you been surprised by how many people have been willing to tolerate these measures for two years? Has uh, that surprised you at all, or was this kind of expected that people would go along as soon as the fear kind of got rolled out early on?
1: Well, um I didn't think people would tell her, you know, I, I got this wrong. I thought that people would kind of say, Yeah, okay, enough, we'll move on. And um instead, I what happened is you know the the COVID restrictions became uh part of the political identity of the left. And you know, therefore you had no logical endpoint in the more liberal areas. And you know, if a mask is, you know, like a liberal equivalent of a MAGA hat. You know why would you stop wearing it unless you've become a republican right <laughs> so it it you know the, the political identity issues make it very difficult to to find an exit and uh you know maybe and i'm hoping that the cdc kind of calling off the dogs will uh, help in that regard but you know they could always toggle that back on so it, that's not really uh you know you don't know how permanent that is but it's uh, i look i i didn't think this would last two years and uh now I really do worry. Look, I I this could last 10 years or forever in healthcare contexts. I mean, yeah. how many places have lift masks in healthcare settings? Any? I, I don't yeah.
0: know. I don't know either. I, I assume it must it must be zero. I'm not sure. I don't know if, if okay, so are healthcare
1: workers just gonna tolerate? Are they okay? Yeah. I, I I don't. And by the way, like just as a normal person, I don't want to go to a doctor when they're requiring masks because it's like, how do I take medical advice from somebody who thinks that a freaking piece of cotton <laughs> stops submicron particles? Like, I can't take your medical advice.
0: Right. Well, that that's one of the things that I think have, has been very surprising to me is how poorly doctors have done during all this uh, With with how they've just most of them have completely fallen in line. And, and it's like, again, if you guys were you're the, you're the medical experts, where were you for 100 years recommending masks for to stop respiratory viruses? How many millions of people have died over the last 100 years? Because we've had flu pandemics and, and flu seasons every year. And you none of you have been recommending masks. And I don't, I don't I've never gotten an answer to that question. What, what's the answer there? The, the science changed. The, sci- the science change, but it's just physics. That was, that was one I just saw recently where I uh, think it was Joseph Allen. Who's was, was like, Oh, it's just physics that masks work. If it was just physics, what where were, again, where were you? If I go back and search through your tweets from, yeah, he's
1: one of the worst. Alan's one of the worst. I mean, yeah. the, uh, you know, the uh, Allen and Oster and Gandhi, uh, you know, they drive me up a wall because they pretended to be on our side. Um, mm-hmm. And sort of like defined the safe uh, the opposite sort of the controlled opposition, if you will, um, but whenever it mattered, they failed us, right? Yeah, and so well, you know, with friends like those, I mean, I actually think they were more destructive than just the outright villains in some regards, you know. I, I it's but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, they it's ridiculous. First of all, none of these medical doctors have any relevant expertise on the physics of aerosol particles, they don't know anything about fluid dynamics. I mean, there was a there was a there was like a British engineering uh, PhD who had some, yeah, I think it was in the telegraph last summer at this thing about, you know, he was like doctors have this cartoonized view of the world. They don't understand the way things are. It's not a biomedical issue. How particles move through the air, it, you uh, know, when it gets in the body, then it's their expertise until then uh, they should like leave it to people who actually understand this stuff.
0: Exactly. It uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, so to end on slightly a more positive note, uh, if there is some semblance of of hope, uh, it's that I think, at least my personal view is that it's clearly they've they've kind of sidelined Fauci. Uh, he's he's not on the news every every minute of the day now, uh, which did, appears did to you show. You see the
1: article our friend Jordan shackdell wrote on this.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Shared it. One it. It of was the fantastic. funniest things
1: I've ever seen. He's like, they got Fauci on like the most obscure random YouTubes and uh, like the the local the local news here in DC.
0: Yeah, exactly there was uh, some random far left podcast. It it was, it was crazy. Um, So it it kind of, to me, it shows that they are aware of how polarizing and and negative uh, his, he is and, and, and by extension, the restrictions are. So am I being too optimistic that it shows some, maybe some some modicum of awareness here of how unpopular these measures have become?
1: I think that the marching orders uh, from the democratic pollsters and, uh, and a kind of political brain trust is, keep all of this stuff on ice through the election. And mm-hmm. so we've got, you know, it's it's March now. We've got till November. The next eight months, it's basically going to be held in check. But, you know, I, I really think that unless they're forced to admit that it was never justified and it was a mistake and it was wrong, then you you get it back again in the fall and winter. Mm-hmm. They get through that election and they say, okay, great. You know, our base wants it and, you know, we're safely reelected and, you know, masks on.
0: Yeah. I, I certainly hope not, but I, I have fears that that could be exactly what happens. Um, but anyway, thank you so much, Phil, for for joining the show. Thanks for doing this. Uh, you can follow Phil on Twitter at Kirpin, which you should because uh, it, there's you share just so much great information and with a, a lot of humor, which I always appreciate. Uh, so thank you again for doing this, Phil. All
1: right. Have a good one, Ian.